Hello and welcome to Leanne Ward Nutrition, a podcast where you will find expert advice on all things health and nutrition related. Each week, we will discuss my three niche areas of gut health, emotional eating and sustainable fat loss. My hope for this podcast is to cut through the BS online and show you real, practical and evidence-based messages around nutrition so you can live your best life day in and day out. So sit tight, buckle up and let's get started on today's podcast. Welcome back to part two of the podcast with Andrew Hall. Andrew is an accredited sports dietitian and exercise scientist who consults with individuals to maximize their performance through nutrition guidance. He works with a range of individuals from recreational to elite athletes and currently consults with the Brisbane Broncos rugby league team, the Brisbane Bullets basketball team and the Brisbane Bandits baseball team. Andrew has a particular interest relating to injury management and nutrition and optimizing body composition for health and performance, including muscle gain and fat loss. If you haven't listened to part one of our chat, please head on over to that episode first as we discussed all things injury prevention, management and recovery. On today's episode, Andrew and I will discuss supplementation, how to choose a supplement with regards to safety and quality and which are the top supplements he recommends and why. We also talk about post-workout nutrition. We discuss pre-workout nutrition and give you examples. Whether it's best to train fasted or with fuel on board, how to adjust for rest days, how to adjust nutrition for injury, and the three R's relating to refueling, rebuilding, and rehydrating. Make sure you guys head on over and give Andrew a follow on his Instagram account at Andrew underscore Hall underscore dietitian and get ready for today's podcast. It's going to be an epic chat. Welcome, Andrew, back to the podcast. Now, this is the second one that we're recording for our listeners at home. Our first one, we really took a deep dive into injury prevention, management, and recovery. And today I've brought Andrew back onto the podcast to talk about all things nutrition, sports nutrition, supplementation, and pre and post energy um, fueling and recovery. So welcome back, Andrew. Thanks, Leanne. It's good to be back. Looking forward to it. Thank you. Now, the first thing I'd really love to get your input into is around supplementation. It's such a buzzword. I feel like a lot of people just want that easy. They want to take that pill or that shake or that, you know, that thing that will just give them that extra benefit. But how safe are some of these supplements? Do we need to be concerned or worry about worried about some of the things that we're being, you know, constantly marketed at through social media and, and that sort of thing every single day? It is a confusing market to navigate. Um, there is a lot of, uh, I guess, advertising and, and marketing and peeping te- people telling you that you need to be doing this and taking this. Um, I think bringing it back to basics is you've got to get your, your three pillars um, correct. So that is eating well and consistently eating well, sleeping well, and then making sure that your training program is enough to help you get better, but not too much that you start getting past the point of um, it being effective training. So from a nutrition point of view, supplements, um, I guess to use an old analogy, supplements are, I guess, the icing on the cake. You have to make sure that um, your total macronutrients, so your carbs, proteins, and fats are being met. You need to make sure that that's happening every day um, and then go into sort of timing, so making sure that the timing is correct in and around your training sessions. And then, you know, once you're able to do that and do that consistently, then after all that, you would sort of delve into some supplements. When it comes to supplements, 
we sort of work off the AIS framework and its framework is, number one, is it safe? Number two, is it effective? Like, is it actually going to work? And number three, like, does it, act- does it actually, you know, need to, need to be used? So there aren't a lot of supplements that fall into that category. Some of the main ones um, and the ones that I would that I recommend the most if someone's asking me about it would would be um, your, mm-hmm. your sort of your whey proteins, um, caffeine, and creatine monohydrate, and then beetroot juice. They're probably the main four that I use. Um, beta alanine is in there, but mm-hmm. it, it take to do it accurately and to do it to a level that will actually work takes a lot of effort um, with multiple uh, ingestions uh, during the day. So that's not one that typically gets used all that all that often. Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to be super sneaky and ask you a little bit more about your recommendations around the four that you recommended, the whey protein, caffeine, creatine and beetroot. Um, just quickly for our listeners at home, where would you see advantages or what types of people would you be recommending? Um, let's start off with like a protein powder. Um, so generally we recommend whey protein powder because it is um, just, you know, better absorbed in higher amounts of protein. So you're getting more bang for your buck. What sort of, I guess, people or populations would you be recommending um, a protein powder to? Yeah, so I, I generally will try and use a, a foods first approach for, for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and definitely with people, um, we stay away from supplements pretty much up until the ages of 18 or over. That's simply because as someone who's training or as an athlete in that um, adolescent age group, nature is doing so much from a growth point of view, a hormone point of view, that we really don't want to come in um, and mess with that. We just make sure that they're eating well, getting enough sleep, and, and um, body and nature will, will do as it needs. I think it's better to have those sort of supplements as an ace up the sleeve later down the track when you don't have all those uh, wonderful natural things happening for you. Um, from a from a protein point of view, um, you can certainly get by without it, but I use it to fortify certain meals or when people are in a hurry. So it's a convenient, um, convenient option to have. So that might be if you're, you know, training in the morning and you go straight from the gym to to work, then you might have that in a smoothie that you've made, or you might have a tub of it at work and then you add it to some sort of normal. Um, Greek yogurt and then throw in some muesli. So generally, I'll either use it immediately after an exercise session if they have to travel for long periods of time and and can't get access to a a good sit-down meal. Or maybe, um, you know, if they're using it as if they're trying to put on weight and it's in the afternoon and they're making a a sort of a high-energy smoothie between sort of lunch and dinner just to keep their total calories up because they exercise so much that they need to be eating all the time, basically. Mm-hmm. We talked about um, a little bit around the even protein distribution in the very first podcast, but can you let our listeners know at home what protein targets we should be aiming for sort of each meal as a general guide? Because I feel like a lot of people, females in particular, a lot of people exercise first thing in the morning and really just don't hit their protein requirements, A, after after they exercise or be, you know, through their breakfast and their lunch. A lot of people have a huge protein intake at dinner, but we're not really getting that even distribution throughout the day. So can you let our listeners know why that is so important? Yeah, um, it, it comes down to the muscle um, needs amino acids to to repair the sort of micro damage that gets done through an exercise session. Obviously, 
there are a large number of people who, who go to the gym or, or want to get stronger and that involves taking care of that muscle or, or helping it grow. Um, so the general population recommended daily intake of protein is 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight and then sort of up to athletes or around, the suggestion is around 1.6 grams per kg of body weight. So the total amount across the day is important, but almost almost equally as important is the timing. So around every four hours, you want to get um, a good amount that turns on what I call the muscle building switch. So the body has sensors where we need enough in one meal to turn on that switch. So that's around 0.3 grams per kilogram per meal of protein. Um, and, and once that switch has been turned on, eating more protein doesn't turn the switch on anymore. So we want to turn the switch on four times a day, ideally, to try and help the body keep and grow muscle. Mm-hmm. So that, um, I guess, for our listeners at home, um to break that down would look roughly around about 25 to 30 grams of protein per meal. Is that right? Yeah. So 25 to 30 grams is a really good good place to start for most people. That's going to be ticking that box. Mm. And to put that into perspective for a lot of people who might go out and just have, you know, go um, hit their exercise session on a Saturday morning, go to a cafe and get some, you know, smashed over on toast and an egg, that meal there, like you would have to eat four eggs in a meal to be able to hit that sort of 25 to 30 grams of protein in that meal. So that's where Angie was sort of mentioning that he might use a protein powder to almost just boost the amount of protein containing a meal. And I do the same thing for myself and my clients where I might mix a bit of um, protein powder into my overnight oats or something like that, just to ensure that I'm really reaching up to that sort of 25 grams per meal. If not, you can really... um, I guess, lose a lot of your gains that you're trying to make with your exercise sessions um, and within the gym as well. So it is really important that you do get that even distribution um, of protein throughout the day. Now, bringing you back to your second recommendation around caffeine, I'm a huge um, coffee lover, coffee drinker, as I know that you are as well. Um, In terms of the science and the research behind caffeine, again, where would we use this? What sort of populations or people would you suggest caffeine supplementation to? Um. It kind of it, it'll work with most most athletes. So it works by reducing our perception of fatigue, um, and it can obviously increase our alertness as well. So in let's say Ironman, Ironman triathletes, they're they're um, exercising for three or four or six or eight hours. So we want to try and use that towards the, the back end of of that competition to to help with that um, reduction in how they how fatigued that they feel for team sports and agility um, sports so your netball basketball um, afl those sorts of things having that alertness having that sort of faster decision making and that um, um, reduction in um, fatigue perception are all going to be very useful outcomes which is the main reason that we we would use caffeine so it can be from you know, team sports to to, to weightlifting, to CrossFit, um, to triathlon. The, the biggest one would probably be in in the morning. So waking up, um, trying to to get your whole body ready to do uh, the workout of the day at a CrossFit gym. Caffeine can help get your body ready and become more alert in that sort of circumstance. Mm-hmm. But too much can also be detrimental as well, can't it? Because too much caffeine can just make us a little bit jittery, anxious, that sort of thing. So what are the, I guess, the recommendations for, um, 
a caffeine amount. Yeah. So, like uh, most things, you it, there there are different ways that people react. Um, there was a really cool study that came out this year that looked at caffeine, and there are uh, essentially three different types of DNA mutations, um, and that will affect how someone reacts. So someone might digest it really quickly with benefit. They might take a little bit longer to digest it, but it'll still be beneficial. And there was even a group that it actually made them perform worse. So if you've tried caffeine a couple of times and you, it doesn't make you feel good, or if you don't feel like um, it makes you any better, then you might be in that third group that maybe caffeine's not for you. If you're a highly anxious person, or if you've got if you you get quite nervous before an event, or if you've got IBS symptoms, there are three ways or three scenarios where you might want to be or, or not have caffeine because that's going to either exacerbate IBS symptoms or take your um, alertness uh, or nervousness above the threshold of it being good um, and you might feel that jitteriness. So when it comes to starting on, on caffeine, you always want to start low and use the lowest amount as an effective dose. And the science shows that around one milligram per kilogram of body weight is a good place to start and then up to maybe three. But you always try and find the sweet spot so that you're getting a good effect without going crazy overboard. Mm. And to put that into perspective, I guess a milligram per kilo body weight, say if somebody weighed 70 kilos, you'd be aiming for about 70 milligrams, which would be about half a coffee. Am I right? Coffee's about 120. Depends where it was made. <laughs> yeah, I sort of, yeah. So, so, yeah, exactly. So 80, 80 to 120 for like a, an instant teaspoon or a shot mm -hmm. of coffee is where I kind of um, generally say it. But we know that even the same, um, they did some research in, on the Gold Coast in Australia and they mm -hmm. went through a whole bunch of different cafes and they went back to the same cafes and the amount of caffeine in a single shot varied greatly. So that's why when we're working with um, athletes, we would either use a caffeine strip because we know that there's 40 milligrams in that caffeine strip or a caffeine powder because we know that how much a, a serve is going to be. You beat me to it. So that was the next thing I was going to ask you about um, other ways if people didn't like coffee or if they were more of that high level athlete who wanted to ensure that consistency in the same amount that they have every time. So for our listeners at home, um, there is a great variation, as Andrew said, in the, the amount of caffeine within just your standard cups of coffee. So if you are somebody who's using it more as a, a dosing, I guess, amount and you need to be specific every time for your sport, using something like a strip or, um, you know, caffeine tablets um, will be a little bit more effective and easier to control. Now, you also mentioned creatine. Would you like to tell our listeners at home in what population groups that you would recommend um, potentially some creatine as a supplementation? Yeah, so creatine um, monohydrate has been really, really well researched over the last probably four decades. Um, creatine monohydrate we can get from food sources, um, but it's mainly animal or, or meat products that contain that because it's part of the I guess, the, the cell of the muscle or within the muscle, I'm sorry. Um, so we're sort of starting to now realise that potentially vegan or vegetarian athletes, um, that would be a really good one to, to supplement with. Uh, creatine monohydrate is also good for people that are doing very fast explosive movements and need to recover well. So um, for someone who's in the gym and they, they do – a set of five and then they've got to recover quickly so they can do another set of five it helps the body 
um, get ready for that second set of five, basically, by um, restoring the energy within within the cells very quickly. So there can be a little bit of, um, when you start taking it, there can be a little bit of a, uh, um, a weight gain. So between 500 um, grams to up to a kilo, maybe. Because when um, creatine monohydrate is stored in the muscle, which is where we want it, it also gets stored with a little bit of water. So there's a little bit of, of, of weight gain potentially there. So um, quite often in your off-season or, or in-season, that, um, that would be when you use it. But you do just want an individual scenario. It might not be great for some and it, it would be better for others. Um, there is a bit of, I hear some different ways in which People take creatine, but essentially all you really need to do is have three to five milligrams every day to keep the muscle saturated, and they recommend having that with a carbohydrate meal. So for most people, uh, I would say have have a scoop either with with breakfast or with dinner every day. It doesn't have to be in a pre workout or a post workout shake, um, uh, but it just needs to be consistent. So I, I do find that people might lift three times a week. And then when they have a have a shake, they'll after their gym session they'll have a scoop. But that's only three times a week. You need to be doing it seven for it to be effective, mm-hmm. almost effective. Mm-hmm. And then how long would you recommend um, that people do that sort of dosing protocol for? If you're doing it seven days uh, seven days a week, would you then do it? Obviously not for the rest of your life. Would it be something that you trial for a couple of months or a couple of weeks at a time? Um, there's no real um, creatine cycling. Um, research that I'm fully aware of. So, mm-hmm. from the sort of um, science researchers that I follow, that they they believe that it, it is safe to have um, every day for for you know years at a time. Mm-hmm. But you might find that in an off season that you do want to just give yourself a break from from the supplements. It has now been shown to be potentially influencing the effect of concussion and how someone can come back quickly from concussion. So for collision-based sports like, you know, um, rugby or AFL or even soccer with heading the ball, those sort of minor brain impacts, um, creatine is one of those uh, supplements that may be beneficial in, in recovering from that. Yeah, great. That's awesome research. And then lastly, you mentioned beetroot juice. Yes. Yeah, so. Again, that, that that's probably been around for 10 or so years now. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, what they found is that some of the, the molecules in beetroots help our cardiovascular system um, by improving the, the health of the arteries, basically. So essentially what it does is it helps people exercise more efficiently when they're in an aerobic aerobic state so these are for sort of long durations i'd say if you're running or competing for 80 minutes or more beetroot juice um, might be a good one to trial now you don't necessarily have to go out and buy supplements for that if you start to incorporate more foods that contain those molecules that i talked about so they're what we call dietary nitrates um, which is which is a healthy version when they come in in plant form like that things like um, rocket and spinach and um, beetroot if you're eating those kind of foods daily or or regularly you don't necessarily need to uh, supplement with beetroot juice but um, certainly those 
uh, sort of longer duration um, athletes can benefit from it at it, it helping their cardio fitness efficiency. Awesome. Some great, some great tips there for our listeners. Now I'd really love to ask you about, I guess, this safety around supplements, because I know that if you've got somebody who is an athlete or doing a sport at a really elite level, you would be very concerned around the types of supplementations that, that they might use from a safety perspective. So can you talk to our listeners at home? I guess this is just relatable to um, us being in Australia because there are different standards throughout the world, but what are the standards in Australia around the safety? regarding supplementations? Yeah, so I guess um, athletes that are competing in World Anti-Doping Agency Sports or Australian um, ASADA, I've forgotten what that acronym is, I guess it's Sports Anti-Doping Agency, um, they can be tested. So they need to be very careful about what they put in their body to make sure that it's not a, a banned substance. So every year, um, there's a list that comes out of an update of these are the, the substances that athletes aren't allowed to have. Mm-hmm. Um, and most athletes should go on to the ASADA website to learn more about that. There's an e-learning course that they can do every year. There's an app that you can check all of these supplements on. But essentially what we're, we're trying to do is make sure that any sort of foods or drinks or supplements are safe for the individual um, and that they're, I guess, effective. and that we need to be a bit careful about how those supplements are made. So in the last five to 10 years, there's been a lot more of a push on supplement companies guaranteeing to the the buyer that their product is safe from these banned substances or cross-contamination. So it might not always be that someone has deliberately gone out and had a banned substances to get an unfair advantage over their competitors. They may have had something that was made in a lab with a different substance and because it's made in the same lab, there might be that cross-contamination. So cross-contamination is a really big one that we need to watch out for. To make sure that you're safe in in that regard, you would try and buy um, products that have a tick of approval on them from a a third-party banned substance tested uh, company. So the two main ones that um, I'm familiar with are HASTA and Informed Sport. Um, And if you see um, a particular uh, supplement company and on the label it's got an Informed Sport logo or a HASTA logo, you know that that product has been sent to a lab, fully tested to make sure it's safe and the ingredients on the label are actually what's in the tub. And so you should have more confidence in that particular product. So for elite athletes, they are advised that it's safer to not have any, but if you are going to um, have um, supplements, these are the precautions you need to take. And would you say that it is, um, say we're talking about everyday athletes here, so people who just want to be super fit, super healthy, best versions of themselves, they're not um, traditionally what you would term an athlete. Would you say that it's safe for these types of people to consume supplements um, that are outside of Australia? Or would you be recommending that they stick to just supplements from Australia? Do you see, um, I guess in terms of where the, these ingredients come from and as you said, cross-contamination risks and that sort of thing. Do you personally take, um, you know, would you buy a protein powder that comes out of China or America or something like that? Or would you be recommending that people stick to just supplementations made um, by Australian companies? Yeah, I think it's it's worth um, understanding and looking into any sort of food or uh, product that you're, that you're going to consume. 
So by looking on a label, you can, I guess you can find out whether or not that company is Australian and um, whether or not the, the ingredients in that particular product have come from Australia. With our food supply now, it's obviously great that the label tells us what percentage of, of the ingredients in that particular food come from Australia. So um, you've got that opportunity with food. I'm not sure that that's exactly the case in supplements, but you can always reach out to that supplement company. Um, I will always try and support Australian um, or suggest supporting Australian when it's possible. And then also those those two ticks that we spoke about or those two companies and, and having those um, on the label so you know that even if it has come from the US, it's still safe because it's been tested. Um, so you've got that, I guess, assurance that what's what the, the product says it is, is actually what you're consuming. Mm, definitely. Uh, particularly, I would, would think more high-risk people, such as if someone's taking something um, while they're breastfeeding or something like that, which I know you don't generally recommend supplements at all for those types of people. But I do know that I get questions through my social media of people taking different types of protein powders while breastfeeding and that sort of thing as well. So I would say that that would be even more important to know exactly what is in your supplement um, if you are one of those, I guess, more high-risk sort of population groups. Yes, absolutely. Now we're talking about uh, recovery. So I'd love to get your input into um, helping our listeners understand why post-workout nutrition is so important. Um, All right. So post-workout nutrition is definitely important. Um, The the timing depends on where you are in the day, basically. So there was a big push that, you know, you had to get, there's this sort of uh, anabolic window and you have to get um, a shake in immediately within 20 minutes it's probably not as urgent as that if you have eaten leading up to that point so um, we don't need um, to, to be too crazy about it but essentially for for most people who are exercising regularly or or have athletic am- ambitions you would want to be trying to eat every sort of three to four hours now when i work with um you know clients that are um, endurance athletes or or basketballers or netballers or whatever it might be generally you want to try and get them into a scenario where after they finish training they can go and um have something to eat it's like a solid meal that ticks the the boxes so you know refuel um, rebuild and rehydrate so refueling um, with carbohydrates if it has been a longer and and intense session rebuilding with um, protein so again after you've done some exercise the body has more signaling um, and there are some changes within the body that says hey let's come and um, fix this uh, protein or these that micro damage so that's a, a good time to to have that and then rehydrating to make sure that you're um, recovering properly f- for the next day and would you say for most people getting in a post-workout uh, meal or at least a snack at the very least is important within an hour of finishing their workout would you say that as a general standard for most people it's within about an hour yeah i think that that's a really good target to have um, i think most people would be pretty hungry um, you know, if they're sort of following that sort of plan, most people don't like to start feeling full. So by the end of that workout session, they're probably going to be hungry anyway. Um, so yeah, I think a, within a within a one hour window w- would be great. And you mentioned um, 
refueling, rebuilding, and rehydrating, which is great. So carbs, proteins, and um, some sort of hydration is really important. Can you give our listeners um, a few examples at home of what this might look like if it was a snack, if they weren't able to sit down and have a proper meal, say they were running to uni or running off to work, what sort of snack would encompass all of those things? And then what sort of meal, um, what a great meal option would look like as a post-recovery meal? Yeah, so a snack um, that you could pretty much anything um, that you can get in straight away. So those sort of things that you might have in your bag, that might be um, UHT milk or chocolate milk um, box. It might be uh, some fruit. It might be um, if you've got access to something that's cold, it might be like one of the yogurt drinks or some yogurt. Um, dairy is a, a fast-absorbing proteins and, and a very good good one for athletes. So um, even a milk coffee, uh, if it's in the morning, even a milk coffee is going to get some of that um, recovery happening. If you've got opportunity to have a meal, um, some of the more common ones that I'd recommend would be um, eggs on toast with a coffee, a chicken salad wrap, maybe a smoothie. So you throw some, some milk, yogurt, um, oats, banana, peanut butter, those sorts of things in there. Um, maybe smoked salmon. A bagel with some salad in there or maybe even a sweet potato frittata. So they're some of the more common um, recovery meals because they're fairly quick um, digesting and um, obviously high in nutrients as well. Mm-hmm. There are certain s- scenarios where some would be better than others, but generally if it's just once a day for the, for the, for the general active person, they're all going to be good option. Mm-hmm. Now, what would your advice be to recover, I guess, faster between sessions? You know, there's nothing worse than that feeling of DOMS or feeling like every time you get up and you get out of bed in the morning, you feel like you've been hit by a bus because you may potentially just be having a huge training load or you're doing a new sort of program where you're just not conditioned to it yet. So you just, you're really, really feeling it every day. Yeah. The main one is getting enough, enough food in, in general. So getting enough total calories. If you're, if there's been a big change like that, um, Again, within that sort of one-hour window, as we sort of spoke about, getting ticking those recovery, um, rebuild, replenish, and um, rehydrate. And the more colour, I guess, you can get, so those antioxidants that you find in, in foods, they can be really useful to help the body deal with that exercise stress, so to speak. So I'm not necessarily talking, oh, that he, he means all the vitamins and minerals, I'm going to take a multivitamin because we know that that's not a good idea after exercise. We want that to be actually coming from from real food. We don't really understand exactly why, but we find time and time again that the real food works best um, in a, I guess, in a range of different factors that we're not fully across. But high quality food, so less processed, um, um, you know, lean proteins and then um, veggies or salad with lots of color mm-hmm. and then the hydration obviously as well. Right. Now let's talk a little bit about pre, uh, pre-workout nutrition. Cause I know that there's a huge misconception around, um, what to have before a workout, whether or not to have anything at all, particularly if someone's getting up at, you know, maybe 4am or 5am in the morning. Um, so what? I guess I'd love you to chat to our listeners about, um, the best sources of pre-workout nutrition and when they would be more appropriate versus when it might be okay for somebody to train fasted. Yeah, it's a great question. And one that I spend a lot of time working through with people essentially times where you don't necessarily need to have anything before you go and train would probably be in the morning 
if it's a non-critical, non-intense exercise session. So if it's um, if you're just cycling the legs over or to recovery, a light recovery run um, or a, a fairly easy, straightforward session, maybe every now and then you can do that in a fasted state um, and there won't be too many too many issues there. However, if you've got, if you're in the afternoon or in the morning, um, if you've got a session that requires you to be very alert or listen to a coach give you technique or you're trying to learn a new play or a new drill, that takes, I mean, the brain uses up a lot of energy. Um, so you want to make sure that it's ready to go and generally easy, digestible carbohydrates before your exercise session is the place to start. Mm -hmm. Now let's explain to our listeners a little bit more about what easily digestible carbohydrates means because I've had people message me saying, you know, I have a tablespoon of almond butter before my workout, but I've got no energy or I, I like to have some chocolate before I go and work out or I have, I have a protein shake before I work out. So what, does, what is the definition of an easily digestible carbohydrate and why would we want that compared to fat or protein before we work out? So the easy digestible carbohydrate Essentially, we're using those because it's not taking the body a lot of energy to break down. Um, digestion itself does take the body some energy. And when we're digesting foods and when there's foods in our, um, in our gut, our body has to send blood to the gut to help with that whole, I guess, process of breaking it down and absorbing it into the body. So protein and high fiber and high fat foods are going to sit in the gut longer. Now, if there's more in the gut, one, you're going to feel a little bit heavy, but two, there's going to be the body wants to send blood to the gut for longer, which means that there's not a, as much blood available in your, your heart, your lungs, and your exercising muscles. So what we want to try and do is make it very easy for the body, get some energy in, not to take too much time to digest it so that you can work hard um, and, and concentrate. Now. It's kind of a bit of a weird one because you kind of flip healthy eating on its head when it comes to immediately before exercise. Mm -hmm. And that's when you're going to have, again, you don't want it to be high in fiber because we want it to be absorbed quickly. So, you know, um, corn thins with honey, um, different types of fruit, even um, white bread with some um, sort of lower sugar jam. Um, some people like those yogi squeeze packs or those um, sort of fruit squeeze packs, tin fruit there or in Easter time, I love um, uh, like a hot cross bun. So there, yeah, not a lot of stress on the body and that's where, where I would start. That's, I guess, distinguishing that that works then and, and not to eat it all the time mm -hmm. um, because we don't, later on, you don't want to feel full all the time. So that's when high fiber is important. But uh, you know, one that I do myself is I'd have a, a, a coffee. That's where I have my collagen. I'll eat an orange um, in winter in Australia where, when it's um, Australian oranges and that vitamin C and that collagen um, and so the carbs, the caffeine and the collagen are all working um, and then I'll go and do my exercise about 45 to an hour later. 
great examples. And me personally, I do um, just one or two module dates. So they're the bigger types of dates. And particularly if it's something that's really early in the morning, like I'm not a morning person at all, but if for some reason I have to get out and pump out my workout really early and I just don't feel like eating, I might just use say 150 or 200 mils of juice. Um, just dilute that down with a little bit of water and um, scull that and then go head to the gym or something like that if I need to. So there's some more examples to our listeners at home of where those easily digestible carbohydrates come in really beneficial, particularly for a workout first thing in the morning. If it is more that higher intensity workout or you're pushing for like you're pushing for results or you're, you're looking to go faster, stronger, harder, you really do want to do that with some fuel on board. And as Andrew mentioned, you're easily digestible carbohydrates. So not your whole grain breads and your really dense, you know, seeded crackers because the fiber and the fat in those things are going to slow down um, the body's ability to be able to access and utilize that carbohydrate as fuel. So if you're somebody that loves um, lollies or as I've recently found out, the rest of the world call it candy, (laughs) that would be um, an easy opportunity to bring one or two, um, you know, jubes or lollies or candies into, um, you know, a pre-workout as a pre-workout fuel as well. Um, now, Andrew, what do you recommend for rest days? So this is a question I get asked all the time. People generally say to me, should you be eating the same amounts of foods and the you know the similar sort of eating pattern on training days compared to rest days? I personally um, do eat very similar to training days compared to rest days. I might just change up my pre and post workout nutrition only slightly, but me personally, it doesn't, it doesn't vary really um, day to day. What are your sort of thoughts or recommendations on this? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think in general for for people that are doing uh, that where where they want to be in regards to their fitness and and their physique um i think that you know that's a fairly good option to keep it pretty similar when you're not having anything immediately before that session or if you're not having anything during that session obviously on a rest day you're not bringing that cover um that that fuel on board if you're trying to put on muscle or put on weight, I think that you would need to keep the calories pretty similar and really help your body recover um, in that day off and, and not fall into a low energy status. For a lot of people who are trying to reduce their body fat levels, essentially it just comes down to shifting the ratios on, on a plate. So if you're using the, the, the dinner plate, I guess, visual, um, on a rest day, you might have half of your your lunch and dinner plate to be uh, vegetable, um, non-starchy vegetables and salad, a quarter of it to be protein and a quarter of it to be carbohydrate. So essentially, you're eating the same volume of food, um, and it's filling you hopefully filling you up as much. But the total calorie load of that meal is actually less than a day that you had trained. Now to to make that a little bit more clear, on a training day, you might change that uh, plate up a little bit. So essentially what happens is that you actually increase your carbohydrates and that takes over a little bit of the veggie and salad area because your body needs more calories on those days. So that's the main difference. It's kind of just shifting the ratios of the, of the, the veggies and the carbohydrates depending on a day that you've been out moving more to a rest day or, or a sedentary day. 
Mm-hmm. So your body just utilizes those extra carbohydrates a little bit easier on a training day versus you may um, just sort of slightly reduce them on a non-training day. Yep. Now, um, I do have one quick question. Um, our final question for our listeners, what would you recommend if there's somebody who's doing a double training session? So obviously this would be really important for a high level athlete. I would hundred percent recommend going and booking in with a local sports dietitian for some personalized advice, but say they were just somebody who, um, was doing some sort of like gym challenge or something like that where they're sort of the gym recommends that they train you know a morning session and a nighttime session I know a lot of people and I'm not going to name the different names of challenges but they sort of recommend in my mind a little bit of overtraining Um, but I guess it's from that you know they're doing an eight-week challenge or a 10-week challenge or something like that so they're sort of required to train morning and night which for a normal person I sort of consider a little bit too much training but a lot of people out there are doing it so I'd love to get your recommendations on just um nutrition and fueling if they are training morning and night and that's sort of a high intensity session so it might be a hit sort of workout or it might be some weights and then at night time it might be a crossfit style of workout or something like that so quite intense sessions it's not just walking morning and night yeah gr- great question and obviously a, a common scenario um, with the with the people that i work with uh you, you basically want to make sure that if, if they're training in the morning that they're getting enough carbohydrates in in that first four hour window so um, the research sort of sort of says that there are changes in the messaging that occurs within the body, and that the body is able to then go and replace the carb stores in the muscle more in that four hours. So, let's say you train from six thirty to seven thirty in the morning, you would eat a meal by eight o'clock, ideally. That is enough and 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 a decent whack of carbohydrates. You've got your protein there, and then two and a half three hours later, you're having a fairly solid morning snack that's high in carbohydrates because that's going to help you replenish those muscle glycogen, get more, um, I guess, charged muscle glycogen stores for that afternoon training session. You still need to get protein um, after your workout and at lunch and then maybe another one before you do that afternoon session, but not as critical as making sure that you're, you're keeping your, your, your fluids and your carbohydrate up between the first and second session of the day. Definitely. And I guess a lot of people I see when they are doing a high amount of training or more than they would typically do, um, it can dampen their appetite. So some people really do just struggle to get that nutrition in in general. So again, any tips for somebody who may be having such a high training load that they just really don't feel hungry because they're just kind of so exhausted throughout the day? Yeah, tough one. Um, I I mean, you... Using liquid calories is always a is a good one. So, obviously, up in here in Brisbane, it you know it's, it can be very hot, and that really can um, influence people's appetite as well. So, you might want to make that that first meal um, a smoothie or or an acai bowl or um, birch and muesli or try and have a cold. I think that sometimes in that sort of circumstance, cold options can be a little bit more enticing. You probably don't feel like an eggs Benny if you've just done a high intensity workout for forty five minutes in a gym that isn't air conditioned. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I reckon that those sort of cooler liquid options are a great one with the scenario that we're talking about. It, that's not the same for everyone, um, but for someone who's got to train again that afternoon, I think that, that, that's a very good option. Yeah, definitely. Liquids are always easier um, to tolerate and get down than what a full a full meal would be to sit down and try to eat that after, as you said, an intense session in the middle of summer. And if you think about it, like um, if you were having 
um, you know, salad and there was sweet potato and corn and lots of salad, like that takes a lot of time to eat and there's a lot of fiber in that. Whereas if you're having a chicken wrap, like the carbohydrate in a wrap isn't, doesn't take as long to get through. It's a little bit easy to eat. So for the scenario that we're talking about, that, you know, that would be an example where you would use a wrap as opposed to, um, uh, you know, corn and sweet potato and, and quinoa. You would flip that if someone is really trying to lose weight and eat mindfully and f- make sure that they're full and, and um, you know, that taking more time to eat and having a filling lunch is very important for people that you know, maybe aren't exercising as much and do need to be weight conscious. Mm-hmm. Definitely a great point. Now, that brings us to the end of another amazing chat, Andrew. So thank you so much. I would love to just get your if you had one tip for our listeners at home to send them off into, um, I guess, just nourishing and fueling their bodies in a great way, what's the biggest tip or the biggest thing that you would recommend for our listeners um, to just help them, you know, get that proper nutrition in or recover properly or anything like that? Do you have one big tip or one big thing that you see a lot of people doing wrong that you would just love as, I guess, a recommendation for our listeners at home? i put you on the spot. <laughs> yeah, I think that we're all very, very busy. And I would, if you're very focused and or you're trying to do things that you don't normally do, I think it's important to try and avoid being overly reactive when it comes to nutrition. So that means if you're doing a workout at the end of the day, you kind of need to know before you start that workout, what you're going to be eating after it. Mm-hmm. Ideally, most of it's ready to go. So you take out that reactive, that um, that um, potentially that emotion involved, that people are very hangry or if mm-hmm. it takes a bit longer to get around um, the supermarket and then, you know, something grabs their eye and it could be an hour and a half between when they leave the gym and when they actually end up eating. So I would say a fairly simple one would be know exactly what you're going to eat after your workout and try and get as much of it ready as possible before you before you start. Yeah, that's an awesome tip. There is nothing worse than being hangry, particularly after a workout. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In a, in a grocery store, being hangry um, and exhausted after a long day of work and a workout, um, I'd try and avoid that at all costs. <laughs> You'd be like that toddler in the aisle being like, I just want that toy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Angie, for joining us. It was absolutely wonderful. Now, where can our listeners reach out to you, find you? Do you offer um, online consultations at all? Yeah, so I do clinic work and as part of that, we um, I do offer online or phone consults. Um, so I guess an email, um, getting in touch would be great. Uh, I've got a website, which mm-hmm. is uh, com. I can't remember if it's .au off the top of my head. Actually, I'm not in there a lot. But um, and Andrew underscore Hall underscore Dietitian is my Instagram handle. So you can mm-hmm. find both of those on my website, um, and my email is on there as well. So that would probably be the best way to, to reach out and um, yeah, start helping you with your sporting nutrition endeavors. Sounds great. And I will make sure that I link your website and your Instagram handles in the show notes as well. So guys, head on over there. Make sure you go and give Andrew a follow on social media as well and go check out his website if you're interested in having a one-on-one consultation with Andrew as well. Thank you so much for joining us today and um, we will um, we'll catch everybody in the very next podcast. Legend. Thanks, Leanne. <laughs>